Hello and welcome to Brief Musings from a Slightly Crazed Artistic Mind. I'm your host, the aforementioned Slightly Crazed Artistic Mind, Joshua Halstead. Today, I want to ask you to take a breather and focus your energy into something relaxing. Because I want to pause, step away from the constant media feed of film and television and pop culture internet. I want to step away from the bustling streets that Mexican street food inhabits. I want to go back to nature. And what better way to visit nature than with the poems of the great Emily Dickinson? Emily Dickinson is one of those poets who everyone has heard of, and it's quite likely you know a few of her poems. You probably had to recite or study one of her many works at some point during grade school. Like most people, you probably found the lyricism to be enchanting and blissful, but lacked a full grasp of what it truly meant and its importance. This isn't actually a fault of hardly anyone besides, well, the schooling system, particularly in America, but also in other countries, like England. See, schools tend to teach a few specific Dickinson poems, and they tend to wax poetic about the nature metaphors and how she isolated herself from others to spend time surrounded by the natural world, writing poems peacefully. We tend to be taught this majestic, saint-like embodiment of God's first creation as the personage and the whole of Dickinson's character. In many ways, she was this incredible, mysterious, organic world attuned spirit, and I don't want anyone to lose this magic that they feel when reading her work or reflecting on it. But I also think that it's rather unproductive to deify artists in a way that robs them of their humanity. Flaws, quirks, and experiences are the most beautiful parts of what makes us human, and to strip that away from someone simply because their art is resonant and feels wistful is a great crime in my opinion. It's also a great crime we don't as often commit against male artists as we do against female ones. We openly discussed the many faults of John Donne, for instance, and his great debauchery and poor behavior before becoming a cleric in the Catholic Church. It's quite well known that Edgar Allan Poe was an alcoholic with severe mental illness who married his cousin. The fact that Henry David Thoreau was actually quite hypocritical, a man who wrote great novels about the importance of self-isolation and surrounding oneself with nature, but actually lived a relatively close-to-town life, often went into town and had visitors from town, is so baked into modern society that there are jokes about it on late-night television. So why has Emily Dickinson been discussed and taught as a mystery so much? Well, firstly, there is a lot of her life that is actually a mystery, for the simple reason that she never intended to be a famous poet. She wrote poems for herself, in journals, never intending to release them, and it wasn't until after her death that most of her work was found and published. That being said, in scholarly circles, plenty is known about the iconic writer, but much of this has remained less common knowledge than information on the lives of her contemporaries. I would like to dive into her life and work now, but I'm going to center a lot of this on the symbolism in one of her poems specifically. That being number 214, or I Taste a Liquor Never Brewed. So before we begin, I just want to pause and read you the poem in its brief entirety. I taste a liquor never brewed, from tankard scooped in pearl. Not all the Frankfurt berries yield such an alcohol. Inebriate of Aramai and debauchy of dew, reeling through endless summer days from inns of molten blue. 
When landlords turned the drunken V out of the foxglove's door, when butterflies renounced their drams, I shall drink the more. Till seraphs swing their snowy hats, and saints to windows run, to see the little tippler leaning against the sun. Emily Dickinson was born on December 10th, 1830, in Amherst, Massachusetts, to a lawyer father and, of course, a stay-at-home mother. Unlike most girls at the time of her adolescence, Dickinson was given a more traditional education, as her family, and particularly her father, was set on having well-educated children. Her family was tied very directly into Amherst College and the educational system. Her grandfather, for example, was one of the founders of the college, and her uncle was the treasurer. A lot of evidence suggests that her mother was distant and unfavorable to her, causing Emily to lean more heavily on the men in her life, particularly her brother Austin. In her teen years, Dickinson attended Amherst Academy, where she spent seven years altogether, studying a wide variety of subjects, including literature, philosophy, arithmetic, and botany. She was considered quite an adept scholar at the time. Unfortunately, Emily also had a tendency to fall very ill very often. In April of 1844, her cousin Sophia grew sick with typhus and died, which led Emily into an existential crisis. This is the origin of both the fear and the welcoming of death featured in numerous of her poems, most notably perhaps in Because I Could Not Stop for Death. This even led to a deep depression, and she was sent away to recover. It's worth noting that from this point on, Emily would have many ups and downs in her bouts with depression and existentialism, all of which is clearly present in her work. At the age of 18, she was introduced to a young lawyer named Benjamin Franklin Newton, who worked with her father. Throughout a window of approximately two years, by Dickinson's own account, he claimed to see her as a great poet and introduced her to many great writers, the likes of which include William Wordsworth, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Lydia Maria Child, Charlotte Bronte, and William Shakespeare. Newton encouraged her to write poems until his death from tuberculosis. After the shocking and sudden death of Amherst Academy principal Leonard Humphrey, who had been supportive of Dickinson, she returned to a deep state of melancholia and depression. This would last most of the rest of her life and result in her ultimately largely isolating herself. It is also theorized that she may have withdrawn from society due to agoraphobia and epilepsy. Over many, many years, while struggling with her own ailments, Dickinson watched her friends, family members, and mentors suffer and die, each one driving her fear of death and her depression deeper. She's quoted as saying, The dyings have been too deep for me, and before I could raise my heart from one, another has come. On May 15, 1886, Emily Dickinson died after a two-and-a-half-year struggle with Bright's disease. Before we start to dissect the symbolic resonance of Dickinson's poetry, there is one other important piece of her life we haven't discussed, but should. Emily's brother Austin married her best friend, Susan. Throughout her life, Emily wrote substantially more letters to Susan than anyone else, and there was a closeness and intimacy in their letters that has led many literary historians to hypothesize that the two were actually romantically involved in some way. While this is not explicitly shown anywhere, evidence can be found in some of the lines in her poetry which seem to hint at an attraction to the female physique. And now, on to the actual poetry of Emily Dickinson. 
During her lifetime, only 10 of her poems were ever published, all done so anonymously and heavily edited to match traditional conventions. The poem from earlier, for instance, had the ending of the first stanza edited for its publication in the magazine, Springfield Republican, which was run by her friend Samuel Bowles. These lines were changed from, not all the Frankfurt berries yield such an alcohol, to, not Frankfurt berries yield the sense such a delirious whirl. When studying the work of Emily Dickinson, most scholars split these works into three periods. First, poems written before 1861. Only five poems are generally attributed to this era, and they are all much more conventional, and full of much more sentimental messaging. One of these, perhaps not so coincidentally, is to and about Susan. Second, poems written between 1861 and 1865. Roughly 802 of her just over 1800 poems were written in this period. This is when she found her thematic footing, incorporating nature, melancholic meditations on life, and explorations of mortality. Third, poems written after 1866. This period consisted of only a small portion of her poems, and they were recorded in an entirely different manner. At the time of Dickinson's writings, the most common meter for poetry was pentameter. However, she chose to eschew this form, in lieu of her own style that was a combination of different meters and techniques. Perhaps most commonly, she employed the use of ballad stanza, which is broken into quatrains, where the first and third line use tetrameter, and alternate lines use trimeter. This method generally uses the ABCB rhyme scheme. She did have a habit, however, of using slant rhymes quite often, as well as often including peculiar punctuation and several dashes. When presented as originally formatted, it is incredibly clear that a poem is a work of hers, even if you were unaware of this prior to beginning to read it. I could go on for hours discussing the life and history of Emily Dickinson and the many intricacies of her poems, and I'd be inclined to do so if it wouldn't entirely dissipate any semblance of consistency I've curated with this podcast. For now, however, suffice to say, she is far from being encapsulated by the shallow, unhuman-like precepts pop culture teaches us about her. In regard to poem 214, which we read earlier, I think we should now discuss frequent symbolism in her work. Flowers, for instance, represented different actions or emotions typically, and many flowers, such as gentians, correlated to the same specific emotions each time they were invoked. Gardens tended to refer to our world as she imagined it. Then there is the matter of the poems which were written to someone which she interchangeably refers to as Master and Sir, among other names. These appear to be written to a non-existent, unattainable, godlike man and often draw influence from great artistic work of her time. Then, of course, there is her strange, morbid fascination with death, which is referenced repeatedly throughout her work, in both saddening ways and ways that seem to beckon it. In number 214, Dickinson begins by playing on an irony. She is drinking something never made, yes, on the surface, an irony on its own, but then take into account that the poem, and especially the first stanza, is presenting her as inebriated, though the indication of the text is that she's actually sober-minded. This is played on throughout the poem, because the poem is not actually about liquor, nor is it about the nature she borrows imagery from. In fact, 
The poem is most likely about her own lifestyle. By mostly secluding herself, leading an isolated life, surrounded by nature, she has carved out a joyfulness and serenity. However, she still goes into town on occasion. She still has visitors, and she still continues correspondence with friends and family. She both does and does not give herself to this brand of peace. She is both drunk with the calmness of isolation in nature and sober-minded about the trappings of life, perpetually unable to be fully inebriated. The final two lines of the poem draw the themes to a pointed close. A tippler is one who habitually consumes copious amounts of alcohol. The little tippler, as she says, refers to herself. Then she draws emphasis to where she is leaning. Why? Because she's not leaning on something grounded to the earth, but rather to the sun. In the end, she gives herself over to the drunkness on life. Thusly, as many have said, I taste a liquor never brewed is about getting drunk on life. But I hope through exploration of the wordplay and symbolism, it's become apparent just how reductive a description that is even if technically accurate. Another of the many symbols Dickinson employed is that of the undiscovered continent, wherein she supposed the mind and spirit to be entirely real, tangible places. Often, she would allude to having visited these places and her intent to return to them. While obviously our minds and spirits are not literal, physical locations, they are visitable locations. Reading Emily Dickinson's work shouldn't just whisk you off to nature or isolation. It should whisk you away to, an, to the infinite recesses of your mind. It's taking a moment away from the hustle and bustle of the real world, taking a breath and disappearing into yourself for inner peace. Hey, post-essay Josh here. And at the end of every episode, I try to give you something interactive. And this time, I want to try something a little different. No tweeting, no homework, just find an hour this week to sit in stillness. Turn off electronics, remove yourself from media and the craziness of the world, and sit in stillness, drinking in the world around you and allowing it to carry you into the visible places of your mind and spirit. Take yourself on a free trip to the undiscovered continent. Bask in the beautiful rays of unencumbered sun. Swim in the vastness. Escape. Allow it to recalibrate you. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week.